Welcome to Intimacy Architecture with Christiane Bella. This call-in radio show is here to help you discover the power of your intimacy. So join us with your questions for Christiane and her world-renowned guests, authors, speakers, and doctors. Together, they will help you build a life you love. This is a shame-free space where no topic is taboo. Here is your host, Christiane Bella. Hello, I'm Christiane Bella, and you are listening to Intimacy Architecture, helping you to build a life you love. So today's episode is going to be a little different. Um, I am not interviewing anyone today. I am doing some storytelling. I am just going to share uh, rather candidly um, kind of the story of my origin um, and how I got to be where I am and why I do the work that I do. Um, so I will preface this by saying um, this show could possibly uh, bring up some triggers. Um, and so I do just want to be mindful and um, and preface to say that, you know, we will be talking about um, abuse on this episode. Um, so um, please be sure to take care of yourself. Um, be sure that, you know, if, if that is a trigger to you, that you are in a safe, comfortable space when you listen to this episode and that you have um, all the support you need if something should come up for you. Um, I'll take a moment to say also, um, if you do need support, uh, before after listening to this episode, you can always contact the um, sexual abuse hotline, which is 800-656-4673, um, as well as go to rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org. Um, and they will also be able to provide you with uh, counseling support. Um, they have instant chats um, and people on call 24-7 to be able to help you um, if you need any help or if something in this story resonates with you and, um, and you want to move forward to doing your own healing process. So um, there's the disclaimer for today's episode. All right. Um, yeah, this is an interesting one because it is a story I, um, I avoided telling for a really long time. And the the shifting point for me was um, I recently did a TED talk, which I was very excited about. Um, that was a long time in the making and it was a, a goal of mine. And so I was very thrilled to finally achieve that goal. And I got to do um, TEDx Lenox Village uh, women's uh, talk here in Nashville, Tennessee. And my topic was uh, how to better your life with boundaries. And I was a little nervous even doing that TED talk because in that talk, I do address that, you know, my family didn't really have boundaries. Um, and so I didn't learn boundaries from my family that I, you know, I had to go through and learn boundaries on my own. And I was a little concerned about my family hearing the TED talk and were they going to be upset and feel judged and, um, and how were we going to communicate about that? And, and the irony of course is, you know, um, I, I struggled even to give that talk for a long time because, you know, I, I would always be concerned about who the audience was and not wanting to, uh, throw my family under the bus, so to speak. Um, and the irony being that, uh, only one person in my family listened to that Ted talk. Um, and so it's kind of funny because a big part of my, uh, processing that I've done and healing that I've done is, is around the fact that my family was neglectful, um, and unaware and, and had such severe denial that they were not present. Um, 
or helpful in navigating uh, the abuse that occurred in my life. And so um, the funny thing being, you know, that here I'm so worried about what they're going to think of it. And they're totally absent and, and unpresent to the whole thing, which is much, you know, how I ended up in a lot of these situations to begin with is their, their lack of presence. Um, so I really decided that, you know, this story that I had about not telling uh, the, the full truth of my experience um, because I wanted to protect them actually was not serving anyone. Um, and it was just, uh, you know, a block that I needed to come over in my own time to be able to share um, freely and candidly um, and be able to be vulnerable in a safe way um, that showed everything coming full circle. And, and so that's where I am today. And so here we are. Uh, so the story kind of begins with um, the fact that I never saw my father eat an egg. So my father, uh, when he was about eight or nine years old, was scarred for life. He uh, he came from a very abusive household. Um, and one of his aunts had force fed him eggs um, at one point. And ever since then, he would not eat an egg. So I never saw my father eat an egg. Um, and he would often tell this story about, you know, why he was scarred for life and how he never ate eggs because of this thing and how he carried this wound um, almost in this like <sighs> victim purple heart sort of way of like, oh, the pain you know, an anguish that I've been through, uh, you know, he would talk about how he had been beaten by nuns and his uncles and his aunts and his mother used to hit him with a frying pan. Um, and so he would, you know, often tell this story of, of never wanting to eat an egg again, um, in this very like badge of victimhood of, you know, the martyrdom of, you don't know the, the troubles I've seen. Um, and I would hear the story and I had had a great deal of empathy for him of, you know, of how horrible that must've been, um, growing up the way he did and, and to still at this stage of his life have this reaction, this like severe physical reaction to not wanting to eat an egg because that traumatic memory was so, uh, deeply ingrained in him. And at the same time, you know, over the years of my own healing and processing, I thought like, wow, just how exhausting that is to, to choose to continue to live in that state of wound um, and to continue to be affected by what happened in your past. Um, and so because of my dad's extensive physical abuse as a child, he swore when he had kids, he would not hit his children. Um mostly <laughs> adhered to that more or less. Um, you know, he certainly had a lot of unresolved issues and, um, and I do believe that he believed in his own way, uh, that he was doing better than, than those who came before him. Um, but, and that's, you know, kind of what we'll be talking about today is this idea of, you know, what are we passing down, what are these habits and these responses that we have um, that we pass down from generation to generation? And most importantly, how do we break them, right? How do we break the cycle? How do we identify, um, own our part in it and allow ourselves to actually shift and heal and change the trajectory of, of what's happening um, and to not be in this place of reaction to things that occurred in our life, but rather to find a way to be empowered by them. 
um, and use these tools um, to their best possible uh, resource. So on my mother's side, um, my mother's mother, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, uh, she would always say, you know, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. And that was an expression she used constantly. And, and I was thinking about that a lot recently um, because I feel like I've, you know, gone out of my way to not only like get my fruit the hell out of that orchard, but go plant myself very, very far away um, in an attempt to break these cycles. And my grandmother um, is truly the queen of denial, um, so much so that my family often jokes that she's like a racehorse who has blinders on and, you know, um, will only see what she wants to see. And it, it really is true. Uh, she was the mother of six girls and one of her daughters, well, multiple of, of her daughters had been sexually assaulted, which she uh, swear she knew nothing about. Uh, but one in particular, um, my aunt Marie was sexually assaulted um, in her youth by an uncle, a family member of ours. And I'll get deeper into that in a moment because there's this whole kind of like fucked up family tree of secrecy. But um, specifically, my grandmother was so unaware of what was happening with her children that Marie at 16, and we're talking about like being 16 in, I want to say like 1960 something, like the, the very late 50s, early 60s, um, gets pregnant, right? And so my grandmother has no idea that her 16-year-old daughter is pregnant until she's like eight months along and about ready to like pop and have this baby. Um, that's when my grandmother finally, and not even of her own accord, because somebody else noticed and said to her, hey, like, I think your daughter's pregnant. Um, and she was completely unaware and, and totally blindsided by it. So um, this ability to just completely be so disconnected from what's happening in your life and, and so concerned about how other people perceive you or about the life that you're attempting to show to other people that you're unaware of the reality of what's actually happening in your world. Um, and so it became a very big, important part of my life to not be in denial and to swing the pendulum the other way and to really dig in and seek to understand and to know and to express truth and awareness. Um, because I do believe that, you know, what we, you can't heal what you don't reveal. And I do believe that abuse festers in secrecy, that the the main catalyst in a lot of ways for abuse, especially when we're talking about like ongoing abuse amongst families, it, it becomes, or it, it gets to uh, move forward on its path, I think, because of secrecy and because of this idea of um, trying to protect the persona of what family is supposed to look like. Um, so I, I, you know, 
I often think of my grandmother being the person who, you know, when we talk about like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, you know, and nobody's there to hear it doesn't make a sound. I think of my grandmother as the person who like heard the tree fall and is like, I'm going to ignore that because <laughs> I don't want to believe that that's actually happening. Um, and I understand it. You know, I definitely, again, I have a great deal of empathy for when things are painful and uncomfortable, we often want to turn away. We want to ignore it. Um, in hopes that it will somehow disappear, in hopes that somehow by not giving it attention, it, it doesn't have to be real. Um, and unfortunately, that's not how it works. Um, unfortunately, you know, the only way to process something is to go through it. You can't um, try to dance around it. You really do need to to go through in order to come out the other side. And so... Uh, my family, you know, had a really hard time uh, figuring out this lesson. Um, and so that's where, you know, my generation has come in um, to hopefully, you know, break a lot of these cycles. Um, the biggest one being, you know, the way abuse perpetuates from generation to generation. And so I'm going to back up even further and go to my great grandmother. So my great grandmother, Sadie had eight children, um, the youngest one being Jeannie. Jeannie was sexually assaulted by her brother-in-law, um, my great uncle Nick, and she never told anyone. And then my great uncle Charlie abused her daughter, Susan, so we have this cycle where, you know, here she didn't say anything, didn't speak up, didn't feel safe to do that, harbored that abuse um, secret. And then when her daughter was abused by somebody else in the family, she actually didn't believe her and um, and was not supportive of her uh, in the process of her coming out and healing. Um, another layer into all of this is as I had mentioned earlier, my aunt Marie who gets pregnant as a teenager. So she's sexually assaulted by that same uncle Nick. Um, I believe because again, you know, because nobody says anything, then this is allowed to continue um, because we're not addressing it. So great uncle Nick abuses my aunt Marie um, who has a child not because of a result of that but abuse, but because of uh, as a result of that abuse, she went out to seek comfort and um you know and and was very unaware of you know obviously being in the early sixties, the sex education was pretty much non-existent, and so she um connects with somebody a, a peer of hers um ends up getting pregnant, having child out of wedlock that child um or the children that she has like later on through her life um, end up being abusers of mine. Um, and so that you see the, the cycle perpetuates because of these unhealed wounds. It goes down, you know, the family tree, so to speak. Um, and so this idea of like the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. It's like, it's very twisted in a sense of like, well, if no one is tending to the trees, you know, if no one is like, cleaning out the rotting fruit, um, and addressing the, 
the problems with, you know, with the orchard, then yeah, then, you know, this, this is not going to go very far. It's going to keep perpetuating in, in that cycle. So, you know, looking at this, because I've had a lot of time recently since I I have not spent holidays with my family, as I know a lot of people um, opted not to, uh, given the state of the world right now, um, not seeing my family over the holidays, you know, I I had time to really kind of sit and reflect about, yeah, like what, you know, what is it that drives us to protect the perpetrators? Um, And I believe a big part of it is that that's not all there is to any one person, right? And that was a very challenging truth for me to come around to because I think it's very easy to automatically make somebody the villain, you know, um, and it feels very justified and very righteous to be like, you know, this person um, was a, a child molester or, a, you know, a perpetrator of abuse. And so thus they are the villain and and we can hate them and we can put them in this box and we can, you know, vote them off the island. Um, but the problem with that is that we are multifaceted beings. And while we do need to be held accountable for our actions, are we inherently, you know, the worst of ourselves. And I don't believe we are. I don't believe any one of us, even at our most vile, is the worst of what we've done in our life. Um, And so I think for a lot of my family, this idea of, you know, turning somebody in and, um, and taking action to to try to make right the situation um, somehow negates all the other aspects of the person. And I, you know, I, I again, I, I can understand that um, while I don't agree with it, I certainly can understand why it seemed the, the easier route for them to, to go, to not, you know, talk about it or, or address it. Um, for me, I think it's important to honor that everybody is a little bit of both. No one is inherently all good or all bad or ever always the hero or ever always the villain. But we all have done things that have infringed on somebody else's boundaries, sense of safety, um, you know, acted without clear consent um, in varying degrees. And if we can own our own parts in things, I think it makes it a lot easier to be able to both hold someone accountable, but not completely forsake them. Um, And I think that's one of the biggest challenges I see right now as more and more uh, things come out with, you know, sex trafficking rings and and, um, pedophilia and all of these things are, are rising to the surface that society's first response is to just like kill them, kill them, castrate them, you know, get rid of them. Like they're monsters as opposed to looking at like, well, how did that person get to be this way? You know, what was it that happened along the way that, that crossed a wire in their brain somewhere to allow them to be able to separate from themselves so much 
that they can go about, you know, disrespecting and doing harm to somebody else. Um, and how could we go in and help to reset that? You know, is it possible to go in and reset that, that part of the brain, um, and to discover, you know, what is it that is imbalanced? Um, because the majority, like these, these acts, although we called it sexual abuse, um, is not sexual in the sense of, of there being this like turned on aspect, um, you know, countless studies and research over, you know, decades have shown like, this is a power issue. This is an issue of somebody feeling, um, at some point in their life, typically, you know, they were powerless, someone else abused, attacked, harmed them. And so then they perpetuate this sense of needing power over someone else. And I think especially when we're talking about, you know, abuse with regards to children is this craving of innocence, is this hunger and this desire to feel this sense of carefree innocence and uh, just purity that I think we associate with children. And so someone who feels like that has been stripped away from them, um, almost, you know, is, is hunting for a way to get that back. And in a very distorted and disturbed way thinks on some level that, you know, um, being with a child will somehow they can somehow absorb that innocence or that, that purity again. Um, and so it, it is a, a very disturbed cycle that I, I think occurs in, in the mind. Um, you know, and again, this is to the best of my speculation and, and studies and research that I've, I've done, you know, that, um, that has been done in therapy and psychology, psychiatry over the years. So, the more I think we are willing to provide a, a container for people who are challenged by these thoughts, who have these thoughts or feelings, um, before they act upon them to be able to get the help and the support they need to figure out why, you know, why in there has this wire, um, gotten crossed and, and why is this, this thought even present in their mind. Um, and let alone if, you know, if they choose to take action on it, how to go about creating, um, you know, a situation where they could learn to both be accountable and begin a path of forgiveness for themselves so they can break the cycle. Um, because I do believe that, Forgiveness is the key across the board to break the cycle. Um, how do we forgive ourselves? How do we forgive others? And so that's been my path um, for quite some time now is, you know, how to kind of dig through um, and both acknowledge what happened, but not be inherently defined by what happened. And so, you know, I've as I've been talking to loved ones in my life about the process of like crafting this, you know, uh, reveal of what I'm referring to as the origin stories, I recognize that 
a lot of why I do what I do, a lot of why I show up to do relationship work um, and sexual health work and, and counseling is because I have an abusive past and I want to help educate people to break that cycle. Um, but it isn't inherently the only reason why I do what I do. You know, I, I, there's, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I've, you know, I've taught yoga and I've worked in film and television. There are a lot of things that I'm passionate about that I love, that I enjoy. Um, this path happened to be the one that really called to me most. And I felt, you know, m- most important to, to really follow and, and grow. Um, and yes, I think, you know, it's kind of like little pixels, like, you know, we're, we're made of a tapestry of, of energy and color and being and feelings and stories and memories. And each is like a little pixel. And so, yes, there's definitely pixels in my life that can be traced back to abusive experiences, but that doesn't make up my whole identity. And so I think, you know, if you're listening to this and you're someone who has had um, abusive history experiences, to know that that is not inherently who you are. And while it has potentially, um, you know, obviously everyone has different varying degrees to what impact it has made on your life and the way you relate to other people, um, it does not sum up the whole of who you are. But we do need to acknowledge these parts and integrate them because when we separate from the parts of ourselves that are like, oh, this was the victim or this, you know, was the wounded child and we find those parts of ourselves uncomfortable and we distance from them, that's actually where most of our suffering comes from. So what we need to do is to really look at those pieces and examine them and love them and have forgiveness for them and compassion so that we can integrate them back into the whole of ourselves and see, you know, how can you transmute that? How can you take the wounded child and help them to feel safer in order to move forward in order to, um, you know, have more compassion to children or in order to allow yourself to be more playful and, um, enjoy more, you know, fun, creative, youthful activities. Like what are we doing to integrate with ourselves in order to feel most connected to who we are as a whole? Um, so my personal path has been pretty complex because I, um, I have very early abuse that happened pre-verbal around, like a year and a half or so old. Um, And I didn't come to those memories right away. Um, It was kind of working backwards. So for me, I was, you know, sexually harassed in junior high school. Um, That led me to start to go to counseling. And in there, I uncovered layers of stuff that happened um, with my cousins, as I was talking earlier, kind of that family tree. So like, you know, my cousins that were born from the aunt who was abused, who, you know, had a child far too young. Um, that was a big part of it, you know, of, of uncovering that and seeing like, oh, okay, so some of this is connected to my family and then digging in, um, deeper and realizing eventually, um, my big aha moment was actually determining that the early, childhood pre-verbal abuse was a result of incest. And 
I've, it's been a struggle to wrap my head around this because I feel like, you know, it is like incest is so fucked up. It has its own term, right? I mean, we talk about, you know, there's like sexual abuse, sexual assault and rape, but like incest is so bad. They've given it its own word. It's like its own category. That's how atrocious, you know, it, it, it is to society that they had to like separate it. Um, and I get it because like no one wants to believe or think for one second that your parental figure, you know, the person who helped contribute to your life would do something as horrific as abuse you, um, especially, and, you know, not to split hairs or, or, you know, like victim one up anyone, but I think there are differences, you know, it's like physical abuse and verbal abuse are in certain categories and sexual abuse is in its own category. And at least in my world, I think because that's been my experience seems pretty awful. Um, and so coming to that awareness, you know, um, it was a struggle because I really, I spent a lot of time just knowing that my youngest self had that experience and being on a hunt for what I called like the boogeyman. Like I didn't know, I didn't want to know. That's the truth of it. The truth is I didn't want to know who had done that to me at that young of an age. Um, I, so I just, you know, that's how I, I came to know so much about the history of abuse in my family, because I started talking to more and more family members and digging in to be like, okay, well, who, who are the monsters in my family? And so I was like, oh, wow. So we have all these uncles who perpetuated, you know, abuse for generations. Um, it had to be one of them. And so I, you know, like, you know, trying to inquire with my mother and my grandmother and get answers about like, well, did you ever leave me alone with that person? And did that person ever change my diapers? And did you ever live, let that person give me a bath? And, um, and trying to find anyone else to point the finger at because the idea of having to admit that my father was the perpetrator, um, I just could not fathom it. And so it's been quite a journey to come to this place to be able to, you know, be here speaking about this to say, like, you know, this was the biggest skeleton in my closet, the biggest, you know, secret. Um, and it's, it's so challenging because I believe that, you know, the, the victim, um, or survivors, um, tend to carry that burden of feeling like it's on them to either go forth and, you know, say something about it or to somehow, again, protect the perpetrator and, and keep this secret, um, and it's, it's an exhausting process because again, if we're, you know, cutting off parts of ourselves. So if there's like this part of myself that I have to hide and I can't think about, and I don't want anyone to know about, then I'm dimming and turning down all these other parts of myself. You know, if, if at any given time, I'm not willing to let this be known, then where else am I hiding? And so I think, you know, it's important to kind of make the distinction here too. I'm not saying that if you've been abused and you are a survivor, you need to go out with some like megaphone on a soapbox and shout to anyone, you know, everywhere about your experience. Um, but it's a matter of like, if 
that were to come up, you know, would you be able to stand in that space and say, yes, this is a pixel in the tapestry of my life? Or do you hide and run from it? In which case there's, you know, more processing to be done there. There's more healing and integration work to be done because if we're still separating from that part of ourselves, then there's other areas in our life that are dim or dull. Um, And I saw it, you know, I saw it in the work that I was doing, um, various jobs I had throughout my life of not being able to really show up um, because this idea of being seen and being paid attention to, it was a strange duality. It was like on this one hand, if I played small, there was this part of me that was like, oh good, if we play small and no one notices us, we're safer because we're less likely, you know, if, if attention's not being drawn to us, then we're less likely to be harmed. Um, and then there was this other side of me who, you know, was like, no, but wait, if we get attention and we are seen, then someone will save us. You know, someone will come in and stop the abuse or stop this from happening. Um, and so to see it play out in my adult life, you know, in ways where I, you know, avoided certain opportunities, um, or, you know, passed on things because I was so concerned about being front and center. And then at the same time, feeling the sense of lack because I wanted acknowledgement in order to feel safe. Um, and so I think there's a lot of things that we can do, um, sort of self-sabotaging, self-manipulating things that we do if we are still in a response place, um, kind of responding as survivors that, you know, how do we go in and take care of those inner children so that, again, we feel this sense of integration where we're not detaching from parts of ourselves. Um, I think a really big part of healing trauma um, and breaking cycles is, you know, recognizing that we, we can choose to re retell the story, you know, in, in a way that helps us to move forward. So for me, it's like, okay, how do I um, show up now so that I can use these tools, you know, cause I did, I learned a great deal about, um, keeping secrets. And so now I'm able to help a lot of clients of mine who, you know, have infidelity and who have had abuse trauma issues to undo the secrets of their life so that they can live a more authentic experience. Um, and so whatever your process may be, is, you know, how do you come to this place of being okay with being temporarily uncomfortable in order to get to the other side of the pain um, and to trust that everything does happen for a reason. And so that's been an interesting place for me to be in because 
I do truly believe that we have soul contracts, um, that we are part of a collective consciousness. And in order to learn things and grow consciously, um, we, you know, we choose to come into earth and on this, have these lives. And there are challenging experiences that we need to have that help propel us forward. What I've learned though, over time is that because I was exposed to abuse at such an early stage, um, and in a way that like woke up aspects of myself that were not ready to wake up yet, um, that that then kind of put me in a position to be willing to be in unsafe, potentially dangerous, unhealthy situations because I was comfortable with challenging unhealthy situations. Um, it somehow seemed normal. And so I think it's important to start making the distinction in the healing process of where, yes, like, you know, life will throw you a curveball and knowing how to respond to it and what to do with it, you know, gives us the opportunity for growth versus deliberately seeking out or very kind of unconsciously and haphazardly going through life and finding yourself in unhealthy or dangerous situations just to prove your resilience um, and your ability to like get out of it um, or survive it. Um, And so that's been an interesting thing to realize, like, I don't need to strengthen that muscle of, you know, survival, Um, as much as I need to strengthen the muscle of discernment to really be clear about, well, where am I supposed to be and what is the best thing for me to be doing at this time and who are the best people for me to be around um, and what is actually, you know, a healthy form of growth, right? So if you think of it like gardening, you know, like, yeah, right now, you know, it's wintertime. Some of my plants are having a hard time. You know, it, it got a little cold, a little quick out here. And other ones are managing. And so, all right, I could do, you know, I could pull some of my plants in and try to like accommodate some I might leave out there and see if they make it through the winter. But it's like, you know, we don't go and just like start stabbing stuff with with shovels and and throwing things around um, just to see if it'll survive, just to be like, oh, you know, if I if I chop this whole thing down, what will happen to it? Um, like, you know, just to really take a moment and sit with yourself and think about, you know, times in your life, like, did you put yourself in an an, an unsafe, unhealthy situation because it seemed familiar, even if it isn't the best thing for you, um, it somehow seemed familiar. And so you gravitate to those choices and how can you work on the grounding and the integration in order to be clear about where you're getting growth stimulus from, because I think that's a big piece in the healing process is to be very aware of where you gain growth stimulus from. Um, I also had to look at like a lot of, you know, interesting things. Um, A big part of one of my um, healing processes was coming to terms with, um, stealing. It was a habit I had that I had developed in my um, teens, I guess, at some point in my teens. Um, 
And I had this sense of entitlement that, you know, because things or, you know, safety essentially was, was taken from me was the story that I had, um, that I was therefore entitled to this sort of retribution, um, that the world owed me, uh, for having wronged me. And so I would steal stuff. Um, and it was fun. so funny. Like I, I had this very like Robin Hood esque, um, like code amongst thieves, you know, it's like, so I, I, you know, my rules were like, I wouldn't steal from people. I would only steal from companies like businesses, like target or whatever. And then whatever I stole, um, I had to like give some money to like, like homeless people or charity or something. So, you know, like if I stole like $200 worth of stuff from target, um, not only did I maybe have to give away some of the things I stole, but I also had to give like at least, you know, 10%. Like, so I had to give like 20 bucks to, to a homeless person to like offset somehow the, the karmic retribution. Um, but these, you know, we develop certain habits and ticks and ways that we compensate. Um, and so that was a big one for me to unravel was, you know, this idea of entitlement and this idea of being owed, um, in, in my process of healing and to really, you know, let go of that and realize that my inflicting pain, so to speak, um, on others or, you know, trying to, to again, like take something from someone to make up for what was taken from me was very much the same distorted cycle, you know, that I imagine led my father to do what he did was, you know, here was someone who, you know, was abused by parents and by aunts and uncles and nuns and, you know, onslaught of sex of uh, physical assaults and verbal assaults um, through his whole life. So, you know, his innocence um, was taken away and his sense of power was taken away. And so while it is, you know, not at all justified or okay that he did the things he did, I can understand the cycle that, you know, he then had this moment where his wires got crossed and he attempted to enact power um, upon me to try to get back this sense of innocence and this sense of purity that he felt he had lost. Um, and so, you know, I was doing a similar thing with target. I was like, well, you know, I don't feel whole. I don't feel complete. I feel like something was taken from me. And so I'm going to go and see what I can take. Um, and so breaking these cycles, you know, again, I think we can only, undo what we're willing to see. You can only heal what you're willing to reveal. Um, and, you know, in the revealing, there may come these moments where it's like, oh, wow, I am part of this in, in my own way. Um, you know, how have I acted out, you know, from this wounded place um, in an attempt to heal the wound, you know, am I cutting someone else? And so for me, a big part of, of being able to look at that, um, has been journaling. I mean, I know it may sound like the most simple and cliche thing, but there is something very healing about writing it out, about seeing it on paper, about expressing, um, and, and just really 
clearing it out of the thought process where it can sometimes just swim and being able to like see it and then break it down and be like, okay, you know, what do I, what am I noticing here? Um, so for me doing a practice called the morning pages, um, where you write first thing in the morning when you're in this very like stream of consciousness state and you'll start to see over time, like there's a pattern that develops. There's a certain, you know, there'll be certain things that you talk about over and over again on these pages. And those are the areas that need to be addressed. And those are like, you know, kind of the, the leaky faucet of like, okay, well, what's, where is, where is there, you know, a gap that needs to be tended to? Um, and how do we do that? Um, I think a lot of, you know, therapy, obviously talk therapy is incredible. And I'm, I'm a big advocate for talk therapy. Um, for me in my own personal experience and in the work that I do with people, I go beyond just talking because that does just tend to be in that loop and that story in our head. Um, and we can't always think our way out of it. You know, we can't really solve a problem with our thoughts entirely, especially when you're talking about something like sexual abuse, because the body really does keep score. The body holds these memories um, on a scientific level. We're talking about fascia. So fascia is almost this kind of like spider webby, meshy um, stuff in your body. So it's like under your skin, but over the muscles and kind of through the tissues is the fascia. And the fascia is this amazing network that sends the messages to your brain. And so the fascia is like why you know how to brush your teeth, right? Like the fascia has helped create that muscle memory um, that helps you to brush your teeth or drive your car or whatever these things that we do that are pretty like standard, like you've trained your body to do something. But the fascia will also hold the memory of trauma, And so um, when I really began to get deep into uncovering um, the trauma and the source of my trauma, I had a lot of like physical stuff happen um, because, you know, a lot of abuse was happened at such a young age and then was related to basic needs about like, you know, whether or not I was getting food. Um, you know, I had a lot of like gut stuff related to this. I had a lot of uh, jaw uh, problems related to this, um, as well as stuff in like the hips and the pelvic floor. So physically, you know, yoga, um, specifically kundalini yoga, kundalini yoga um, is a specific type of yoga that really hits the nervous system because it does these sequence of exercises that tap into the nervous system, um, specifically kind of tapping into that, um, the adrenal system. And it gets you to kind of go through the fight, flight, freeze, fawning, you know, stages and, and kind of come through the other side. And so it's a good way of clearing the, the nervous system trauma response from the body, um, kundalini yoga is, is something I'm a big advocate for. And I use a lot, not only for myself, but, um, with my clients as well and to help them physically clear that connection to the nervous system. 
Um, something else I'm a big advocate for is EMDR, which is eye movement. Um, I forget what the D stands for, but it, it essentially works uh, to help kind of reset that part of the brain that, you know, I mean, our brain is brilliant. It's like, oh, I saw a yellow car. I'm going to file this yellow car, you know, and if I get hit by a yellow car, then I'm going to certainly be on alert for any yellow cars, right? That's like the, the brain system. Um, and so to go in and like tell the brain like, okay, actually not all yellow cars are dangerous and we can file this away. You know, these are important things to do. Um, because when we've experienced any kind of trauma, but I think especially sexual abuse trauma, it can be incredibly hard to stay in your body. And so practices like yoga and meditation, um, meditative walking, journaling. These are practices that like, you know, you're in your body for, and the more you can practice being comfortable in your body, the better chance you have of really clearing these experiences from your body and being able to have a very present, um, mindful reaction in the moment to what's actually happening as opposed to reacting in any given moment based on previous wounded experiences that we're kind of bringing forward. Um, and, you know, and again, it's part of the brilliance of, of how we operate. Like we, you know, we're doing that because we want to feel safe. We really do believe that if I hold on to this memory and this thought and this feeling, um, in my body and in my mind, I am preventing it from happening again because I'm on vigilant alert for it. Unfortunately, though, it doesn't work that way. What it does is it continues to just keep us in a state of trauma, which shuts us down. And over time, you know, it really does wear and tear on your gut health and um, your, you know, sleeping. And if you're not sleeping, then, I mean, we just really don't function well. Um, so many things, you know, begin to go wrong physically if we're not sleeping well. So the ability to go in and turn off that part of your brain that thinks it's protecting you by running this trauma loop over and over again um, is really key in the overall, you know, healing process and being able to move forward. Um, I think we have just a few minutes left. So I want to just be sure again, um, if you're listening to this um, and any of this resonates with you, you know, I highly recommend you um, seek the support you need Um you know, I would love to hear from you. Feel free to email me your story. If you'd like to share your story, if you want to just feel heard and listened and acknowledged to, um, you can reach out to me, Christiane Bella at intimacyarchitect at gmail.com. Um, if you need further support, the sexual abuse uh, hotline is open 24 seven. You can call them at 1-800-656-4673. You can also reach them at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org. Um, so there's, you know, resources out there for you to get all the help and the support that you need. Um, and I do highly recommend, you know, you look into what, where are these things residually showing up? Where is the residue of unhealed stuff seeping into your life? Um, how is it affecting your work or your relationships? Um, and they don't even always have to be romantic relationships. I mean, even friendships. I had a 
really hard time trusting women. I was convinced that women threw you to the wolves and sacrificed you to save themselves. Um, and so I did not trust women and, and did not have many women friends for a really long time. So that was another part that I had to unravel. Um, I had to unravel, you know, this whole idea of being the weak gazelle, um, that there was like something in me that made me an, an easy target. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of spokes that kind of come out, um, of trauma that might not be obvious at first. And, and so just this ability again, to acknowledge, you know, with, with compassion and understanding, um, and forgiveness for yourself to allow yourself then to be able to integrate all of these pieces of you, um, to feel like, you know, this sense of connection and, you know, and again, as cliche as it may sound, you know, self-love, you know, to be able to love, um, and appreciate your whole self as you are, and allow, you know, all the, the moments in your life to help not just to move you forward, but, you know, how are you, um, just understanding, you know, just this better understanding of who you are, because I think the more we understand each other, um, the easier it is to show up in this world and break these cycles because, you know, as we know better, we do better and, you know, and we can break these cycles and, um, and it is possible. You know, I, I do believe that doing the work that I've done and being able to go in and look at, you know, the history and, and the lineage, um, just talking about it alone is, is a huge breakthrough and, and shifting the, the ancestral line. So, um, you know, being willing to acknowledge where you've separated and um, and welcome those parts of you back back home. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I am Christiane Bella, and this is Intimacy Architecture. We are here to help you build a life you love. Um, this was a very powerful uh, moment for me to share so vulnerably. So. I honor you for, uh, for being out there and, um, and being willing to receive this message. And, um, I hope that it found, you found some support and wisdom in it, um, to be able to help you grow and build a life that you love because you are worthy of love. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for tuning in and being part of Intimacy Architecture. Join Christiane Bella for the next show. We're live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now go enjoy the weekend. The holidays are just around the corner. Do you want to go through another round of fighting and avoiding your family? Or are you ready to build the life you love? Intimacy Architecture is here to help with our Relationship Reset Program, which combines individual and partner sessions, learn communication techniques, self-awareness, and shift your approach to connection so you can restore trust and enjoy healthy relationships with those close to you. Visit IntimacyArchitect.com to enroll.